I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us to become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep with a particular topic or maybe a particular person. And today, I'm delighted to have on the program Pete Singer. Pete Singer is the Executive Director of GRACE, which is an acronym that stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. It's a position that he took over in January of this year. Here at Ministry Watch, we've often quoted grace or referred to grace reports in our coverage of Christian ministries. That's because grace has become something of a gold standard when it comes to investigating sexual abuse in church and ministry settings. But, and more to the point here today, they also do a great job in helping organizations prevent abuse. I want to talk to Pete Singer on the podcast about both aspects of their work, both their investigation and the prevention of sexual abuse. Pete Singer has a master's degree in social work and more than 30 years of experience working with trauma, abuse, and mental health issues in a variety of settings. He's married, the father of three children, two of whom are grown, and he has one grandchild. I had this conversation with Pete Singer via Zoom. Pete Singer, welcome to the program. It's uh, great to have you on the Ministry Watch podcast and especially to talk about the work at Grace. I've admired the work of Grace for uh, many years. You're relatively new in the chief executive role. So why don't we kind of begin there? Tell everybody who may not be familiar with Grace uh, what you guys do and uh, how you came to take over as the chief executive. You bet. You bet. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I really just value the chance to to talk with people who share this passion about um, making sure that our churches are safe places. And so thank you for that opportunity. Um, a little bit about Grace and what we do. We actually started back in 2004. Uh, Boz Chavidjan, uh, who is Billy Graham's grandson, uh, was a child abuse prosecutor at the time. And he noticed that when abuse intersected with churches and faith communities, that often the church would send a lot of people to a a trial if there was one. But those people would show up to support the perpetrator. And the victim was often left or the survivor was often left alone, feeling abandoned. And... um, Boz knew that this did not reflect the the heart of God for the vulnerable, for for those who have been wounded. And so that prompted him to start Grace back in 2004, really with the mission to equip Christian faith communities to recognize, prevent, and respond to abuse. The focus was initially uh, very much child abuse. And since then, While we still have a very strong focus on child abuse, we also uh, have expanded to include other forms of abuse as well, perhaps adult on adult abuse, abuses of power, 
um, sexual harassment, spiritual abuse. Um, and so we really do look at abuse across the spectrum within Christian faith communities. And we try and address that in uh, a few ways. The first thing that we try and do is really prevention. If we can stop the abuse from happening in the first place, that's the best. And so we do that through our safeguarding initiative where we do training, policy and procedure review, consultation on writing those policies and procedures, uh, an exploration of the physical environment of the ministry to see if there are any weaknesses there that might make people more vulnerable. Um, and we can do each of those things either by themselves or together in a, in a process that actually where we walk alongside of the leadership of that ministry and the congregation as a whole uh, for a year or more. Well, yeah, let me interrupt you there, if I might, Pete, and just kind of ask you a little bit more about that process. So you, you're doing it alongside the ministry and or the church. So uh, so the church really effectively is your client. They contract with you, you produce that report, and um, can you, if, if you're willing and able, can you say a little bit more about what, uh, first of all, what does that what does that cost? I mean, if I'm a church with a hundred people, do you have a cost-effective package for me versus a, you know, a mega church with 2000 people? And so, you know, what, what kind of cost are we talking about for a congregation? Cause I'm hoping that maybe some of our listeners might be in that situation where they are saying to themselves, Hey, maybe we need to do something like this, but you know, I don't know how much it costs or how hard it would be. And secondly, what are the deliverables in that report? I mean, is it just a report or do you guys make specific recommendations for change? Sure. So it, with the safeguarding piece um, of it, the, the cost is going to vary uh, to a, a large degree. You mentioned a church of a hundred people or, you know, a really large, maybe a mega church. Um, there's just going to be a lot more to do in a large megachurch. And so it's going to cost more because there would be uh, more people to train, more of a physical plant to review and assess probably um, uh, a different level of policies that would be required at a megachurch because there are just so many more variables that might come into play that the policy needs to address. Right. As opposed to a church of 100 that might um, not have as many of those variables, and it might be easier to, um, you know, talk to the entire congregation in in one setting. So it's I, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't mean to be uh, pressure on that, Pete, but in round numbers, are we talking about a hundred, somewhere between a hundred and five hundred dollars, or somewhere between a thousand and five thousand dollars, or even more than that? It's going to vary, uh, but it typically does end up in the five to ten thousand dollar range but right. it does vary significantly. Sure. I know I understand that. You know, one of the other things that I've noticed that Grace does is that you'll come in, uh, and, and, and first of all, stipulate for the record that that prevention piece, which is what you're talking about here, is so important. And I wish, you know, every every church would do it. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to press you a little bit on the price, just because I, even though that's a lot of money, I think a lot of churches could afford that and should afford that. And I got to tell you, if they have an abuse scandal or something goes wrong in their church, it's going to cost them a whole lot more than five or $10,000 to, you know, to deal with that problem 
and that's just the financial dealing with it financially. That doesn't even include dealing with it emotionally and spiritually and reputationally and everything else. So, so let's just stipulate for the record that there's that prevention piece of it. But I have noticed grace often come in after the fact. There's been a scandal. Um, the church may, in fact, have their reputation so tarnished by that scandal that any sort of an internal review would not have credibility with the general public. And so they bring grace in kind of as the gold standard, if you will, an outside party, somebody that understands the issues to come and look at what's going in there. Can you say just a couple of quick words about that part of your work, how often you do that, who the client is in that situation, because often there, you know, it does involve a scandal that has gone public. Do you release those reports to the public in some cases, most cases, no cases, or all cases? Right. So when that occurs, the organization is who would contract with us. Um, And that really needs to be the case because of the level of um, access to records and things like that, that, that we need to have. It's, we're just not going to be able to effectively do it without that. Uh, we don't have any subpoena power, and so we can't force any records release. So everything ends up being absolutely 100% voluntary. So uh, the church or, or ministry would be paying, but they would be paying for us to come in as an independent third party. So even though they're paying we are not there to give them a report that tries to exonerate them or, or anything like that. We truly are coming in as an independent third party. Um, as we do that, I think that one of the things that distinguishes us from a report that uh, or an assessment that some others might do, um, some others might do that assessment looking at it from a liability standpoint. And we try and have our focus on let's look at this from the perspective of what is best for those who may have been hurt. What is best for, uh, from the perspective of um, really a godly focus on people who may have been hurt, a godly focus on people who may be vulnerable and the desire that is often there then uh, in the leadership of that church of how can we do this right? How can we properly care for people that may have been hurt? And so uh, that focus, I think, ends up being a little bit different. So then we would come in and we would, again, everything being voluntary, uh, talk to potential witnesses, talk to uh, potential survivors, talk to other people who uh, may have been in leadership or have information. We'd look at documents that could uh, be related to uh, the allegations that are being made. We don't, uh, we pull all that together and we don't actually uh, have the authority to say uh, this is a judicial ruling or, or anything like that. It's more of a summary of what we have found by talking to people and looking at records. We then look and see how does that relate to the ministry? How does that relate to teachings of scripture? And how does that relate uh, to trauma-informed practices? That's something that we're very focused on. Um, we describe that. We then make recommendations and we will make recommendations about how that church or ministry can um, respond to the past, how it can 
respond to the situation that's going on right now because there are still people that are feeling hurt and they still need to convey a message to the congregation or the membership or the surrounding community. And how can you address the future? How can you make this less likely to occur in the future or set yourself up so that if it does, you have the policies, the procedures, and the knowledge in place to respond well and to respond with integrity? Pete, you know, um, I cover a lot of these scandals for Ministry Watch and and prior to joining Ministry Watch for other organizations, World Magazine, probably been doing this for 20 or 30 years. Um, it seems to me some, on some days that there's more sexual abuse and uh, bullying and um, sort of spiritual abuse going on in the church now than ever before. But I also kind of have to take a reality check on that and just wonder if maybe we're just maybe we're just hearing about it more. Maybe there are more people like me and like you who are out there raising the awareness of and visibility of these and in and in fact hearing more about this stuff is not a bad sign but a good sign because it's flushing this stuff out into the open. So I guess I just wanted to pose that kind of that question within that context to you. What do you think? Is it happening more than in years past, or are we just finally waking up to it and beginning to deal with it in ways that we haven't in the past? Sure. So anything that I say about that would be a guess. I, I don't have concrete data to, to back me up on it. So it's an impression. It's a, it's a guess. But my guess, my impression is that it's probably a little bit of both. And I think also some cultural changes. So, so what I mean by that is, is it happening more? I think that there are some ways that we look at power and the use of power that are creating additional risks that are leading us to perhaps potentially more abusive behavior. Can I interrupt you there and just, I mean, just to get specific, I'm going to take a couple of shots and you tell me if this is what you mean by that. Um, the rise of the independent megachurch, which is not controlled by a particular denomination, uh, large churches that don't have effective uh, boards of governance, whether they be elders or deacons or boards of directors. Um, are those the kinds of things that you're talking about that has changed in recent years that might be contributing to that? Sure. I don't want to hit on any one specific system because I think there are so many things. And if we focus on one specific system, then we might miss something that might not fit that. You know, for example, um, if we focus on, okay, it happens in mega churches, then we're going to miss that church of 50 people that is just as, uh, as abusive as perhaps some mega church that you've heard of. But in general, practices might be, like you said, poor governance people who rather than truly providing oversight and guidance are just there to support the pastor and just there to be cover for the pastor. And that can happen in a church, large or small. I mean, bad bad governance can happen in small churches and just as much as big churches. So you're saying it's not really a function of size, but it's a function of, you know, the amount, the transparency and the accountability and the systems of accountability within that organization or within that system. Yep. I think also then over-reliance on a particular governance structure and having that be 
your primary director of action rather than the word of God. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, Pete, let me uh, kind of pivot in our conversation as we kind of, as we uh, wind things down here a little bit and just say, um, or just ask you, um, anybody come to mind that you would point to as an exemplar, as somebody who's doing it right, or at least, you know, long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson might say, trying to do it right at least. And and I would also, I, I might even break that question up into two parts. You know, some a church that, that really has just been taking this stuff seriously for a long, long time and has been on the leading edge of policies and procedures and self-examination, but also maybe a church or a ministry that has recovered, that got caught, that something really, really bad happened there. And, and that, but the, I mean, and that's the bad news, but the good news there is that that was a wake up call for them. And they took seriously the restoration of victims, the restoration of their own community. Um, so any, got any names for me in those two categories? Sure. Um, so rather than giving names, I'm going to talk more about the the qualities that I think I've seen in those churches and ministries, because I think that that's what's going to equip people to be able to find a safe environment. If I were to give you a church name, somebody might be away from that church. And maybe five years down the road, they find themselves in that area and they go there and now they have a totally different church leadership, Right, no longer the safe place that they once were. No, I get that. That's fair. In fact, I used to do campaign when I was working in secular newspapers. I would work for a paper that did endorsements of candidates and then <laughs> the next day they would do something stupid, right? <laughs> so Exactly. I, it's so everyone's I, worst nightmare. <laughs> so I will accept your friendly pivot on that question and the qualities then of an organization that is at least directionally speaking, trying to get this right. Yeah. So I'll jump into the qualities, but I also want to say that those churches are there. We were recently working with a church They had brought us in to look at abuse that had occurred 30 plus years ago. And when we presented the final report to that church, the pastor was, uh, and it's a different pastor that was, than was there at the time. The pastor was on the verge of tears. And I truly believe they were genuine recognizing the hurt that had been caused. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I, believe they were genuine uh, is because every single thing that we put in the recommendations, they did. Even when it meant that the church ended up publicly taking a black eye because they acknowledged what they had gotten wrong. And when that happens, this has a profound impact on the survivors that are there. We've got to recognize, right? Sometimes we think that this is about, what about the people who were abused in this church right now? We forget that in the United States, by the time they are 18, a fourth of females will be sexually assaulted mm-hmm. and a sixth of males. If you got a church that has 50 females in it, you're going to have probably a minimum of 10 to 15 who have been sexually assaulted by the time they were 18. Mm. We're talking about a significant portion of the church body. 
And when we put these things in place, it is not just responding to a specific situation that happened here, but it is responding and caring for and showing the heart of Jesus to all of those survivors that are already there. And it has a profound effect when they can see that. So what are the qualities that I see in churches that I think really indicate this? They're churches that are focused on God more than selves. They're not centered around a specific person who gathers all the power to themselves. And then how they conduct themselves with people. How the, the principles that they really try and embed into the culture of their church, of their ministry. I'm going to tell you six. One, safety. This place is safe. And we're talking physical safety, but we're talking more than that. We're talking psychological safety. We're talking spiritual safety. This is a place where it is safe to talk about my feelings and to not be condemned because I feel down today. This is a place where it is safe to talk about a doubt that you might have and to recognize that God can handle a doubt. So it's safety, physical safety, psychological safety, spiritual safety. It is then a focus on trustworthiness and transparency. It is so important to realize that this is not a focus on making sure people trust me. This is a focus on making sure I act in a way that is worthy of that trust. I'm not entitled to anyone's trust. No matter what I've done, I'm not entitled to that. So my responsibility is to act in a way that is worthy of it. That if they would choose to trust me, my actions, my attitude, everything I do would be worthy of that trust. The next piece is peer support. Equipping people to trust, to rely on each other. Equipping those who may be relied on to be able to be the support that's needed. That's one of the reasons that we work with churches to train an entire congregation, not just the leadership, but the whole congregation, because then you can support each other. You can watch out for each other. You can help each other achieve that safety because you're that peer support. The next is collaboration and mutuality, that we are in this together. And that might mean that the church leadership is in collaboration with the membership. You're working with the membership to determine what does make it safe, to determine what is most needed when it comes to this, to determine where are our weak spots. It might mean that you're working with other organizations, that you're working with other ministries, but you're open to collaboration because you realize that it's not about you. It's about God. It's about the work he has in store, and it's about the people that he loves. It's not about you and your ministry. It's about God and his people. The next is empowerment, voice, and choice to really equip people. 
if there are people in that church that have experienced trauma, there are people in that church that have had their power stripped away. And we're finding ways to help them take some of that back. And that might be arming them with the tools to recognize abuse when it shows up, to be able to discern when somebody is twisting scripture to try and manipulate or control them in a form of spiritual abuse. But whatever it is, we are making sure that we are equipping people, we are empowering them. And then that final principle is recognizing that there are a lot of historical, cultural, and gender factors that are coming into play. That this may be related to how this church in general treats women. That it may be in general related to how this church views children. How this church views parenting practices. And so, and, and it might intersect with some actions that have occurred at the church or beliefs that have occurred in the church historically. But how that works out, it is just a requirement that the church is able to acknowledge and look at those cultural, historical, and gender factors that come into play. And as a church can do those things, can recognize that each of those things has a strong basis in scripture. Every single one of those principles is grounded in scripture. They're also the key principles that are often recognized as trauma-informed practice. But those principles are grounded so firmly in scripture that a church that follows those principles is going to be an effective steward of the power that is given to it. And that is so central. Pete, thank you so much for sharing those six principles. And by the way, for our listeners, I'm going to write, transcribe those and write them in the show notes for uh, this episode of the podcast so that um, if you weren't taking notes, maybe listening in your car or on a walk, uh, you'll be able to see them there. And Pete Singer, I just want to thank you again for being on the program today. And thanks for the work of grace. I have long considered it to be the gold standard when it comes to this kind of work and just pray that uh, that that will continue into the future. And um, I'm sure as we have had... Um, uh, you know, grace or statements from grace or comments from grace in our stories at Ministry Watch in the past. I'm sure that that will be the case in the future, and I look forward to that. So, Pete Singer with Grace, thank you so much for being on the program today. God bless you, and uh, thank you. You too. That brings to a close my conversation with Pete Singer. Pete Singer is the executive director of Grace godly response to abuse in Christian environments. One of the very first episodes of the Ministry Watch podcast featured an interview with Grace's founder, Boz Chavigian. You can find that interview by going to the Ministry Watch website and typing the word grace into the search engine. Before we go, I want to remind you that my book, Faith-Based Fraud, is finally available for sale to the public. Last year, you may recall, we self-published an edition of about 500 copies, and we gave them away to our donors. Thanks to your generosity, they didn't last long. That motivated us to find a real publisher, Wild Blue Press out of Denver, Colorado, and they're bringing out a hardback, paperback, ebook and audiobook version of faith-based fraud. The paperback and ebook versions are 
now available. You can find them by going to Amazon or other online book retailers. And I do hope you'll get a copy today. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.